So this uh, last month, I got a bill from my internet service provider, doubled, and uh, my speed was already stinky anyway, so I called them up. I was like, what's up? What's the deal? They said, well, your plan expired. The promotion's over. It's like, well, I want another promotion. How do I get another promotion? So after a conversation with uh, two customer service reps and a supervisor, I finally got a good promotion. I got my bill cut in half, and I got 100 megabytes per second on my download speed, which is really good because in our house, you know, it's, uh, I don't want to wait for my page to load. We, we watch uh, TV off the Internet, that kind of thing. Definitely a first-world problem. But after I hung up the phone, I was satisfied. I was telling the story to the office uh, last week, and uh, I think it was Laura Schreber said, well, my download speed's 800 megabytes per second. You only got 100? I was like, 800? How do I get that? <laughs> it cannot be fast enough. You know, I can remember booting my computer up with a floppy drive. You know, now we're trying to get as, you know, as much speed as we can out of our, commu- our computers. I hate waiting for that thing to load. I don't know. Am I the only one? I just I, I put the information in. I'm waiting for the response, and I'm just not a very good waiter. And so, uh, you know, I've been reading uh, through Scripture this past year. This past year, God has really grown me uh, in the area of waiting, specifically waiting on Him. You know, I've been uh, reading through the uh, reading plan this year, our 2021 reading plan. It's been so encouraging to see how many of you have uh, joined in that plan as well. I was in uh, Genesis chapter 22 uh, recently. God has provided Abraham a ram uh, to sacrifice instead of his son Isaac. An angel of the Lord appears to them and says, Because you were faithful... And because you did not withhold your son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. In, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Isn't that a great promise? It's a great promise that Abraham wouldn't get to see. In fact, it would be 2,000 years later before we would see the fulfillment of that, pro- that promise in Christ. And I've been reading through uh, First and Second Samuel. I came into Second uh, Samuel 7 uh, just this past week. The Lord has entered into a covenant with David. And he says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Isn't that a great promise? That's a great promise that David wouldn't get to see. And so, you know, we've got these promises throughout Scripture. It would be a thousand years before this promise would, would be fulfilled. A promise David wouldn't get to see. And we're, we're 4,000 years from Abraham. Jesus has been born. Matthew records his genealogy in chapter 1. He writes this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. See, both of those promises made to Abraham and to David have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. David's house, his kingdom, has been made forever. Abraham's offspring are possessing the gate of their enemies. Their nations have been blessed. You see, Jesus' birth fulfilled the promise of a coming Messiah. His death and his resurrection that we just celebrated this past Easter are the fulfillment of a promise for a Savior that would save us from our sins. Those are great promises that have been fulfilled. And so all those promises from years past are now fulfilled in Christ. After Jesus came back to life, after he was resurrected, he was with the disciples. He was with them for 40 days before he physically was raised into heaven. Acts chapter 1 records this. In verse 10, it says, While they were gazing into the heavens, the disciples were standing there watching Jesus go into the heavens. Two men stood by them in white robes. 
and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Isn't that great news? Jesus is going to come back. You know, in the Old Testament, they were waiting for a Messiah. And now we know that Messiah to be true, and we find him in in Jesus Christ. But you know what? Now in the New Testament, guess what? We're waiting again for him to return. We're waiting for Christ to return, and we're waiting again. We've been waiting so far for 2,000 years. And I don't like waiting. I don't know about you. My internet can't be fast enough. I mean, things just don't happen fast enough for me. And the idea of waiting and waiting in my life builds a sense of anticipation. How much longer are we going to have to wait for this? And I think there is a sense that we're all living with the hope that Christ will return quickly. But we're continuing to wait and to wait and to wait. You know, waiting is not something that is in my DNA. And you know what? I think it's probably something that's not in in your DNA as well. People have a hard time waiting in general. In fact, look what I found on my slow internet service last week. The second coming of Jesus, the Bible reveals COVID-19 as a sign. And so this is an actual article. This lady's got a Bible in her hand and she's explaining to the audience why COVID-19 is a sign that at any point Jesus could return. Now it's true that at any point Jesus could return, but it has absolutely nothing to do with covid Nobody wants to wait. Everybody's looking for signs. Everybody's trying to figure out, is this the end? How much longer do I have to wait? In fact, I did a quick search on, uh, is the end near? Is the end near? Just those couple words. 3,800,000,000 results. I mean, everybody has got an opinion about when Jesus Christ is going to return. And you know what? They have been waiting for signs and looking for signs from day one. The disciples were waiting for Jesus to come back. A thousand years ago, they were waiting for Jesus to come back. There's been a constant state of everybody waiting for Jesus to come back. This is not an early problem. It's one that Paul had to deal with. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Jews demand signs. They want to know, is this the Messiah? You know, they wanted signs. They wanted to know for sure when things were going to happen and is this going to be true. And then the Greeks, they were seeking wisdom. They're trying to figure out how to put all the verses and the chapters together, which they didn't have at the time. But they're trying to piece things together in a sense that they would be wise and sometimes wise in their own eyes. Everybody was looking for signs and Greeks were seeking wisdom. But I love what Paul says, but this is what we're going to do. We're going to preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Our focus is to not be focused on looking for signs and wonders and trying to figure out the math and trying to piece this whole thing together. Our responsibility while we're here waiting is to preach Christ and Him crucified. Our responsibility is to help those that don't have a relationship with Christ to understand how do I have a relationship with Him? Who is God? And what does a relationship look like? And then we have a responsibility helping people to grow in their faith towards spiritual maturity and Christ-likeness. You know, it's interesting. If we spent half as much time telling people about Jesus as we spent looking for signs and wonders in his return, we would be headed in the right direction for sure. You know, quick Bible search. I'm looking at the second coming of Jesus. I found over 100 verses. And the second coming of Christ is important. I mean, don't get me wrong. It really is important. But that's not our motivation. In fact, as you read throughout Scripture, there's, just, there's, there's verses upon verses that talk about when Jesus is going to return. 
And so as you're reading through the Bible, I mean, the return of Christ is something that is important. But you know what Jesus says? I don't know when I'm going to return. Only my Father knows. I don't know when I'm going to return, but you need to be ready. I don't know when I'm going to return, but when I do, there's going to be many that call on my name, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to say, I did not know you turn from me. Jesus says, I don't know when I'm going to return, but when I come back, it's not going to be to save anyone. It's going to, I'm coming back to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is going to return. The Bible is full of passages that talk about Jesus returning. In our series on Revelation, every conversation that I have with people about Revelation has something to do with either about the second coming, the thousand years, or, or something that's so far forward looking about his return that we forget about what God has for us today. The book of Revelation was written for us today to, to encourage us today. And the message that Jesus has from him to us, from his Father, through the angel to John, is for our benefit and for our encouragement today as we live out our faith. John's vision from chapter 1 that we looked at at the beginning of this series was rooted in the reality of revelation for us in today. We looked at at least 10 realities like blessing and peace, endurance and insurance. You know, revelation opens up with the fact that the reality of what we have in this book is for us today. And then John was told to write letters to seven churches to write what he sees, what he heard about, and what is to come. And we looked at that message to the seven churches last week in chapters 2 through 3. We looked last week at the principles that we can learn from these churches and how they apply to us today. This week, we're going to look at what John writes about, what he sees next, beginning in Revelation chapter 4. If you brought a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. Or you can just uh, listen along as I read. If you're watching online with us uh, this morning, there's a place down at the bottom, a little tab, you can click Bible, and yeah, you can open up Revelation right there on your screen uh, as you're listening along this morning. Beginning in chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open into heaven. The first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I'm going to show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four elders, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white with golden crowns on their heads. From From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and pails of thunder. And before the throne was burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea, as it were, like glass, like crystal. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around them and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is to come. And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, whoever lives forever and ever, the 24 elders would fall down before him who were seated on the throne and worship him whose lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord God to receive glory, honor, and power. You created all things, 
and by your will, they existed and they were created. Amen. Heaven opens up. And what is the first thing that John sees? You get this glimpse into heaven. The door opens up. John's taken up. He looks up. And what is the first thing that John sees? He sees a throne. There's a throne in the center of heaven. A throne is a ceremonial chair. It's, It's a throne that's used for a ruler, somebody that's in charge. And as you read throughout Scripture, there's almost 160 verses that talk about a throne. And you know what's interesting is we have 43 just in Revelation by itself. Every time you look at the throne, it's a reference to an authority figure. In 1 Kings chapter 10, King Solomon made a great throne of ivory, and he had it inlaid with fine gold. It says in, in 1 Kings 10, nothing like it had ever been made, nor had anything like it been made since, except for this one. This is the grandest throne of all creation. And you get this glimpse of this huge throne in heaven that is pales beyond comparison to anything that you can think of. And everything in heaven, everything in heaven revolves around it. Everything revolves around this throne. 24 smaller thrones There's four living creatures. There's a sea of glass. Everything is revolving around the throne. The throne is the centerpiece of what we find in heaven. This throne is the ultimate seat of authority. The first thing that John sees when he looks into heaven is this throne. It's the the ultimate seat, seat of authority. It's the thing that everything revolves around. It's reflective of the fact that God is sovereign, God is in control, and God is the final authority. That throne represents the final and ultimate authority of God. So how do we respond to this authority? You know, what does authority look like? You know, it recognizes that Jesus Christ as Lord. In Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord you will be saved. Jesus Christ is our Lord. He is over us. He is our authority. And we get that, we get that direction from him through his word. Jesus is not just a savior. He doesn't just get us into heaven, but recognizing Jesus as Lord is, is giving him his rightful place in our life as our authority. You know, 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, we don't preach ourselves, but Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord is the focal point for Paul. And it's really easy for us, especially when we move between churches, you know, to have things become about the personality of a preacher. Matt and Tim and I, we all work really intentionally to make sure that it's not about us. I love having a teaching team. It's really, it gives people different perspectives. I mean, it's good to hear from different teachers. But you know what? It's not about us. It's about helping us to help others see God's authority. It's about helping, helping others to see Jesus Christ as Lord. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is our authority. In Romans 13, it says there's no authority except from God, talking about submitting to our government authorities. You know, we have good kings, we have bad kings. We talked about this earlier in the year when we talked about some of the things that were happening in our country. All authority comes from God. Whoever is over you, that's that's God appointed. There is no authority that doesn't come from God. 
And, and, we, and we learn lessons. We learn from things. We learn from good kings and bad kings as you read through the Old Testament. There's a whole series of good kings and bad kings. And, and regardless, there's lessons that we can learn from them. But that authority, our ability to submit ourselves to that authority is what's being measured. We submit ourselves to God. We submit ourselves to Christ. We submit ourselves to the, to the local body of Christ and to the leaders in it. We submit ourselves to people around us. We need to submit ourselves to people that are over us. And that's something that goes against our grain, isn't it? We don't like to submit. Submit is a negative word for a lot of people. But from a biblical perspective, it's healthy. To submit to Jesus Christ as Lord means that there's somebody that is over you that has a plan that's looking out for your best interest. And we submit ourselves to God. We submit ourselves to Christ. And we get a glimpse of the reminder of God's authority when we look at the throne. Jesus is going to come back. You know, we're going to look at the seals, trumpets, and bowls. We're going to talk about the judgment. We're going to look at the thousand years, and we have some conversations about that. But here's the question while we're, while we're getting ready to prepare for all those. If Jesus came back today, if Jesus came back tomorrow, are you ready? Or are you waiting to learn more before you make a decision. You know, we need to be ready. We need to put Jesus Christ in his place in our life today. Jesus is going to return, and we need to make sure that we're ready. As excited as I am about his return, it also has some implications. And so how about the rest of your friends and your family members? Are they ready? When Jesus comes back, there's going to be a judgment And we're going to begin to unpack that next week as we move into chapter 6. We're going to look at the seven seals, and then we're going to look at the trumpets, and then we're going to look at the bowls, and then we're going to talk about what's going to happen when Christ returns. But you know what? Those things are for our benefit to encourage us that God is sovereign, that God is in control, and to help us to look forward with eager anticipation to that return. And so it's exciting to think about his second coming, but God has something for us today in Revelation. Number one, in that we need to make sure that he is our authority, that he is over us and that we have submitted our lives into a relationship with Jesus Christ. The throne is the first thing that John sees when he looks up into heaven. And then the second thing he sees is somebody that is on the throne. In verse 2, And once I was in the Spirit, a throne stood in heaven. It was the centerpiece. And the one seated on the throne, verse 2, is the second thing that he saw. He saw the one that was seated on the throne. And how does he describe him? He sat there. He had the appearance of Jasper. And carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So we see this picture of who's sitting on the throne that has the appearance of two stones. Two stones, two rocks. How's that work? What the heck is Jasper and carnelian? (laughs) Now, those two stones were, in that time period, something that was very special. Everything falls short of being able to describe God. There is no adequate way for anybody to describe God. In fact, I was talking to Dean, one of our elders on the way out here. I said, you need to pray for me. I said, I'm getting ready to try to describe to somebody what, what heaven looks like. And Dean says, well, the good news is just say this. Whenever you get done, say, well, whatever you said, it's going to be better. <laughs> How do you describe heaven? How do you describe God? Well, in this time period, Jasper and Carnelian, they were images of, of splendor. You know, they were, they, were, they were stones that had an incredible uh, reflection. They were shined. You know, they were, they were absolutely gorgeous. It was, the, thro- the stones were splendorous. And the, and the whole idea that John's trying to get across to us is, is that God is splendorous. 
You know, Psalm 45 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is what? Is unsearchable. You can't describe it. It's that great. 2 Corinthians 9, Paul says, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. I mean, the hope that we have in Christ, how do you explain to the fullness of somebody what it means to enjoy the, the fullness of a relationship with a heavenly Father that wants a relationship with you? It's inexpressible. 1 Peter 1.8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy that this is an inexpressible. And it's a joy that is filled with glory. It's just, it's, it's too hard to describe. Everything falls short of being able to describe what John sees on this throne. But that Jasper and that Carmelian, those things are images of splendor. You know, when we, get, when we get this glimpse of the throne, we see God's authority, but we also see how, how we see his splendor and how great he is. You know, it's really interesting when you look through, uh, you can go online and you can, uh, you know, maybe do a quick search on this or study it. I was really surprised how much discussion there was around how to define the, the two stones. I mean, there was a lot of, there was a lot of people that, there was a lot of disagreement on the cover, color. Was it red? Was it brown? Was it clear? Was it crystal? And so when you go to look at these two stones, you know, the, most of the discussion is about, well, how do you define these stones? We go right to the head. You know, we're trying, we want to know what kind of stones these are. And what's the point of having the stones? The point is, is not the stones. The two stones that were selected were stones of splendor in that time period that would have helped people to understand how glorious God is. You know, those two stones exactly were, were stones that were used on the breastplate for the uh, priest, when they when they went into the high when they went into the temple, they, those two stones were on this breastplate, and the breastplate that they used to wear in the Old Testament that was one of eight priestly garments that the priests would wear when they were serving in the holy temple. Those twelve stones on that breastplate reflected the twelve tribes of Israel, and there was great there was great detail put into what this breastplate should look like in Exodus. In chapter uh, 28, you get a description of the stones that are on this breastplate. First of all, there's two stones that are at the top of the breastplate. And engraved on these two stones were the names of the sons of Israel, the tribes. There were six on one stone and six on the other. So we see two stones at the top of this breastplate. And then as you're reading through the breastplate in Exodus 28, beginning in verse 17, it says this, You shall set in this breastplate four rows of stones, a row of sardis, which is sometimes referred to as carnelian, topaz, carbuncle. That should be on the first row. The second row should have an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row should have a jaconeth, an aggregate, and an, an amethyst. And then in verse 20, it says, and then on the fourth row, there's supposed to be a, a row of beryl, onyx, and then jasper. They should be set in gold filigree. There shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They should be like signets, each engraved with their names for the 12 tribes. These stones were polished. They were engraved on. They, were, they made up this breastplate. And what's really interesting is, is that the first stone was carnelian, and the last stone was jasper. And so you have the first and the last stone on this breastplate that John gets this glimpse to try to describe what God's like. In all of its splendor, you see the shining focus of who God is. You know, it's a radiant figure on the throne, and it's surrounded by a rainbow. We can all understand what a rainbow is like, but this is a, a great rainbow, and the brilliance coming off of that throne is absolutely indescribable. But it is full 
of splendor. When we look up into heaven, we see the throne of authority and we see the one sitting on it that was splendorous. So you move into Revelation chapter 5. In the right hand of the one that was sitting on the throne was a scroll written on the front and the back. You know, most times, you know, I've got notes here. I'm looking through my notes and there's nothing on the back. Most of the time we just put notes on the front and the back. But the scroll that the father is holding in his hand is complete. It's got everything that's needed. It's front and back. It's full. It's in entirety complete. It's written on the back and it's sealed with seven seals. And we're going to unpack those next week. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open up the scroll and break these seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able. There were no angels. There was no one alive today. There's no one that's dead, that's passed, that's in heaven now, that is able to open the scrolls and look into it. And so John begins to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between that throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw the lamb standing as though it had been slayed. Jesus was standing there as if he had just come off the cross, you know, with his, with his scars bleeding. The lamb is standing there as though he had been slain. He had seven horns with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God that were sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of who was seated at the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and every language, people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth forever. And so we see this image on the throne. And then we see the son, Jesus, sitting next to the throne. What you're looking at when you look at the throne, this splendor is God our Father. That's Jesus' Father. When Jesus submits himself to his Father as well, when you pray, my Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, it's that splendor. It's that person on the throne that you're praying to. On the throne sits the Father. And you have the Son at his right hand. And then you have the spirits that are all in the earth that are going before, you know, attracting and calling men into a relationship with himself. Jesus is at the right hand of his Father in heaven. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You're praying to the one on the throne. You know, when you think about God, when you think about what heaven looks like, are you drawn to the splendor of God? Are you in awe about who resides there, the authority he has, and what it means to have a relationship with him. And if the throne and the Father and Jesus staying there were not enough, you have everything that's happening around the throne. You've got all the things that are happening around the throne. You've got the 24 thrones. You've got the, you've got the elders. You've got the, you've got the 24 thrones with the elders on them. And, and, they, and they symbolize, you know, a couple of different things. You know, it's, you know, we've got the 24 thrones and the 24 elders. And there's a couple of different ways to understand that. You know, if you're reading down through how to understand the number 24, you know, some people find that the 24 elders and, and the 24 thrones reflect and they represent everybody that's passed on before us and they represent anybody that's in heaven. 
And you read down through other, uh, uh, you know, other um, commentaries and other authors, we'll find that maybe the 24 reflect um, the cycles of the priests. When you read through First Chronicles chapter 24, you see a, there's a cycle of priests, and there's, there's 24 of them. And so you go back to the Old Testament and say, well, these 24 could be the, the cycles of the priests that we found in the Old Testament that, that are representing us with Jesus there now. Now, some people might find that that might be there's 12 there's 12 thrones with elders that are representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and there's the other 12 that maybe are representing the apostles. And so when you read through these 12 thrones, there's some, some um, conversation about what's the best way to understand that. And here's the end. Here's the deal. Which one of them is really not, really not going to be what the point is? And so trying to figure out, well, is it, the, is it 12 and 12? Is it the cycles? That's really not what the, the point is. It's kind of fun to see how these pieces fit together, but our glimpse of heaven should cause us to worship and to, and to be attracted to what is on the throne. The point's not for us to do the math and try to figure out and see how all the pieces fit. And then you've got the four living creatures that were referenced. You know, you find the four living creatures described in other passages. It talks about in Isaiah 6. You've got, you got these four living creatures one of them's got the face of a lion on it. It says one has the face of a lion. You know, when you look at, the, when you look at these four different faces, you've got a lion, uh, and then you've got, uh, you see, we've got a lion, and then we've got the ox, and we've got the face of a man, and we've got the face of an eagle. All four of those faces are actually reflected in the, in the same covenant that God would make with uh, his people back in Genesis chapter 9. In Genesis chapter 9, we see uh, the, the, the lion reflected as, a, as an, ox, an ox and a man, an eagle, is a similar to God's covenant with Noah as the face of the man. Or God's covenant with the fowl as the face of an eagle. Or God's covenant with the cattle as the face of a calf. And God's covenants with the beasts of the earth as, as, as if it was the face of the lion. And so when you're looking at this imagery, we're trying to figure out what these faces are. There's a lot of different speculation about how to best understand it. And then you've got the sea before them that's like glass. And when you read through the sea, Revelation talks about the fact when Christ returns, the sea is going to be done away with. And so it doesn't mean that there's not going to be any water. You know, the sea is not just water. The sea is, think about the ocean right now. I grew up in Southern California, and every time we went to the ocean, you know what you find there? Big waves. You know, the sea is something that is typically turbulent. When Peter is in the boat with the disciples, the waves start to come up, and Jesus calms the waves. When you think of the sea, it's usually a sea of, of chaos, and so what you see here is the sea in front of the throne. It's smooth like glass. God is in control, and he's brought everything under his authority. And he's made everything that was you know, disorganized and chaotic calm. And so when you look at the sea that's around the throne, you've got all this imagery of things that are happening around the throne. But our glimpse into heaven is given to us, not so that we can try to figure these out, but so that we can be drawn into what it means to worship our God. Psalm 71 says, my mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all day long. We are to worship God with our mouths. Our glimpse of heaven should should cause us to to worship God with our mouths. Psalm 95 talks about coming and bowing down and kneeling before the Lord God, our maker. It's a position of humility. There's a sense of humbleness. There's a sense of unworthiness that we have when we come to worship the Lord our God. Psalm 143 says, I stretch out my, my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a, like a parched land. Our glimpse of heaven and everything that's happening around the throne was given to us so that we could understand and fully appreciate what it means to worship a living God. 
that loves us, that wants a relationship with us, that is an authority. He's our Father in heaven. He is worthy of our praise. Our glimpse of heaven should cause us to worship God. In verse 8 in chapter 4, the name used by the four living creatures, he said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, worthy of our praise and worthy of our worship. And when we read through Revelation, we reflect on our glimpse of heaven. We should be unavoidably, unconditionally, and irresistibly drawn into worshiping the creator of the universe. Now, what's a relationship with us? Revelation was written to us so that we can understand the authority that God has, so we could get a glimpse of his splendor, and so that we could understand what it means to worship him in spirit and in truth. We see the throne. We see who's on the throne. And we see everything that's going on around the throne. It's an amazing thing. And then we see things that are happening from the throne. In verse 5 and 6, it says this, From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, perils of thunder. And before the throne were burning, there were seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there it was, like a sea of glass, like crystal. What was coming from the throne was rumblings, perils of thunder, and lightning. And we're going to see that unpacked in its fullness next week, beginning with chapter 6. In chapter 6 through 16, we see the, the judgment of God. We, and in these judgments, we're going to look at the seven seals. And then we're going to look at the seven trumpets. And then we're going to look at the seven bowls. There's three sets of judgments, either of them with, with seven increments of judgment. They cycle and they parallel each other. And every time you get to the seventh judgment and the, and the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, every time you get to the seventh seal, trumpet, or bowl, you see the perils of thunder, the rumbling, the flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. In Revelation 8, it talks about what happens when that seventh seal is opened. And then when we get to the trumpets, there's going to be flashes of lightning, rumbles, and perils of thunder, and an earthquake, and heavy hail. We see that when the seventh trumpet blows. And then when we get to the seventh bowl poured out, we're going to see flashes of lightning, rumblings, pails of thunder, and a great earthquake. And so as you read down through these, you see there's a progression of things that are happening. And the seals are opened. You see, the, you see there's the angel that has a censer. It's filled with fire from the altar, and he threw it to the earth. And we see the perils, the thunder, the rumblings, and the flashing of lightning and the earthquake. And then when you get to the trumpet and God's temple, heaven was opened. The ark of his covenant was seen with his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, pale of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. And then when we get to the seals, to the bowls, there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, perils of thunder, and a great earthquake. Such has never been since man was on the earth. It was so great was that earthquake. And so as we go through these judgments, you see this building of the effects of God's judgment. God's judgment should bring to our minds the idea of respect and holiness and reverence. We serve a God that loves us, that wants a relationship with us, but he is also a just God. And that justice requires us to bring with it a sense of, of respect and acknowledgement of his attributes, his holiness, 
The fact that he is just, that he is Lord, that he is God. Our glimpse into heaven as we see what comes from the throne should move us into reverence for God. When we get this glimpse of heaven, we should be in reverence of him. We see the throne. We see who's on the throne. We see around the throne. And we see what comes through the, comes from the throne. And those things should move us to be able to experience his authority, his splendor, his worship, and his, and his reverence. God's judgment moves us. So this morning, as we think about how to respond to this great scene in heaven, what does authority, splendor, worship, and reverence look like for us? Now, what does that look like in your life? In Philippians chapter 2, it says this, God has highly exalted him, talking of Jesus. He has bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, have you come to the point where you've accepted Jesus Christ as Lord? Have you been able to experience the joy of having a relationship with him? We have been called into relationship with himself so that we can glorify God with our lives. And those four principles that we looked at when we look at the that the, the scene of heaven should result in our lives a sense of respect for authority, understanding that Jesus is the authority, understanding that what it means to serve a God that is splendorous, that we worship him and we revere him with our lives. John six forty four says that no one comes to the Son unless the Father draws him. The Holy Spirit is living and active in our world. And if you do not have a relationship with Christ, that Holy Spirit is external and you have not come underneath the authority of God in his word. And so the spirit of God is external in the life of someone that doesn't have a relationship with Christ. And when we come to understand our need for a relationship with Christ, we ask him to come into our life. We submit ourselves, not just to his promise of saving us from our sins, but saving us from our sins and then also making him a Lord. You know, in Romans 10, 9, it says, those that believe in their heart that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross, and they confess that with their mouth, they are saved. And so we believe with our hearts and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we are saved. And then when you read through Acts, you know, that, that, those two simple passages I just shared with you, Peter stands up and he gives his first sermon in Acts chapter, in Acts chapter 2 and 3,000 people believed and got baptized that day. There were those that received the message, they embraced it, and then they identified with him. We have to give God his rightful place in our lives. We have to submit ourselves to his authority. And when we ask Christ to come into our life, his spirit indwells us. We become Christ followers, and then we are under his authority. And when he returns, we don't have to worry about the judgment. We're going to be judged, but with regard to salvation, we can have the assurance of spending eternity in heaven with God. We submit ourselves to God's authority And so I want to ask you this morning, is that something that you have done? You know, have you asked Christ to come into your life? Have you submitted yourself to his authority? Father, draw me into a relationship with you through your son, Jesus. I believe that your son is, Jesus is God. He died on the cross for my sin. He came back to life. He was resurrected from the grave. And as best as I know how, I'm asking him to come into my life as my savior and my Lord. We put ourselves under the authority of God's word. We become one of his children. And authority is the first step. It's the first response 
of understanding what we see when we get a glimpse of heaven. You know, does your faith, if you are a Christ follower, you know, has that authority overcome you? Are you drawn into the splendor and the worship and the reverence of God that he desires? Romans 8, 24, this hope that we have been saved for, the hope that we have is a hope that has not been seen. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with it with patience. You know, we're waiting with patience for, for what God has for us. And, and I know it's hard waiting. I know we all want to, we know how the story ends. That's the good news. But it has to unfold. It has to unpack. And, and while we're here, God has a plan and a purpose for us. Like Jesus submitted himself to his Father's will, we submit ourselves to our Father's will. God has something for us today. He's given us spiritual gifts to serve the body of Christ. He's given us the opportunity to be in biblical community together with, with, with other believers in our small groups. He's given us his word that we, we spend time in on a routine basis. The Christian life looks like something. And it changes us. And all of those things, we don't come to church because we have to. You're not here this morning because you have to be. Maybe. I hope not. When I was younger, I got dragged to church. And so if you're here this morning, you got dragged and you're not quite sure why you're here, you need to understand that God is a God that doesn't want you (laughs) to be dragged. He wants you to understand the love that he has for us. And it's that love that he has for us that creates the splendor. We want to be here to worship. We're here because we serve a God that is awesome. He is splendorous. And we want want to serve a God that we revere, that we know, just where our security comes from. And we've come to celebrate that this morning. Hope is living with the anticipation of Christ's return. It's waiting patiently. Are you being conformed to the image of Christ? Those that he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. If you have a relationship with God, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, we're the clay and he's the potter. We're to be molded and changed and we're constantly being conformed into the image of his son. And if you have questions about how to have a relationship with Christ this morning, if you want to know more about what it means to be conformed uh, to the image of Christ's likeness, we would love the opportunity to talk more with you about that and to pray with you. If you haven't uh, gone to our website yet, springbrook.org slash revelation, we've got resources for you available to help you as we move through this series. Pastor Matt has been writing um, some questions and some curriculum each week um, after the sermon, uh, and then he's been sharing those with our small groups. And if you're not in a small group at Springbrook, you can go to the website and you can download. All the questions are there. We've got, you know, tips for you to kind of help you learn how to apply some of the things that we're talking about as we move through this series. If you are looking for a small group, most of them are online. I, I tell you, if there's a small group right now, if you are a small group leader at Springbrook, and we're in this series on Revelation right now, and somebody reaches out to you and says, hey, can I join your group? Your answer is yes. We've got to make room for people in our small groups. And so I want to encourage you, if you're not in a small group and you're saying, hey, I know we're two weeks into this, but can I, can I join your group and, and join the discussion on there? Jump into a group. It's not too late. Typically, our small groups open, um, you know, we, like, it's like school. You sign up for a quarter, and once they've started, they take a break. But I, I'm thinking that God is doing something in this series right now that we just need to get, you know, online with. And so if you're not in a small group and you want one, we'd love to help you get involved in a small group. If you're looking for a place to get connected and grow in your faith, we're glad you're with us at Springbrook. If you want to know more about how to get connected at Springbrook, we have a starting point workshop coming up next month. And we will help you figure out where am I in my spiritual journey and what are my next steps and how can I begin to fulfill and live out God's plans and purposes for me. I'm really looking forward to what God's going to continue doing through this series. I'm so grateful that God loves us. He has a relationship with us. And, and the, uh, it's my prayer for each of us is that we look 
and we think about heaven this morning, that we would be drawn to his authority, to his splendor, and to reverence, and be drawn into worship. So I'm looking forward to what God has. If you have any questions about any of these things, I'd encourage you, please reach out to any of our pastors. If you're online with us this morning, you can just say, hey, I've got some questions. Our online host would love the opportunity to talk with you or pray with you. And we're so glad that you are with us today. And we're looking forward to what God has for us over the next couple of weeks. I hope you can join us. Would you pray with me? Father, I just want to thank you for this day you've given us today. God, thank you for the hope that we do have in Christ. I thank you for the assurance that we have that through Christ we can spend eternity with you in heaven. Sometimes when I think about heaven, I think about that great scene in heaven. But I also know that when Christ returns, he's going to establish a new heaven and a new earth. And heaven and earth are going to be combined somewhere. And it's, it's so fun for me to be able to think about being able to walk with you like Adam did. We look forward with eager anticipation to your return and what that means for us. And look forward to the things that we're going to learn as we continue through this series. But God, today, I pray that you would draw each of us closer to yourself. I pray that you give us a powerful, increasing sense of your presence in our life. I look forward to all that you have for us. We commit this day to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.